Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We are here to inspire and empower leaders in the hospitality and restaurant industry to unleash the true potential of their organization and their people. In today's podcast, we have a very, very special guest. Travel all the way from the US to Brighton, Barry Schuster. Barry is the founding editor and investment partner at the Restaurant Startup and Growth magazine and restaurantowner.com. This is a magazine that focuses on inspiring independent restaurant owners, giving them great insights and tools to boost performance in their restaurant. I sat down with Baron to talk about leadership, the delivery market, the current state of the industry, all from a US perspective. There's some really interesting nuggets to be picked up here, so grab headphones and coffee and enjoy. I'm very excited to welcome Barry to the Hospitality Maverick podcast, visiting us here in Brighton today, all the way from the USA. Welcome, Barry. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for having me. I'm a really massive fan of what Barry and his wider team are doing. They are running the Restaurant Growth and Startup magazine, and also the RestaurantOwner.com website. And if you don't know about it yet, you should go in there. And I'm a member myself. There's so much to learn, but I'm sure Gary can tell much better what it's all about. Well, uh, Restaurant Startup and Growth uh, magazine, uh, we founded it in 2003. We quickly determined that uh, restaurantowner.com would be a great partner for a uh, joint partnership. Specialized publications company in Kansas City, been a fairly well-established small publishing company. And the president, Gary Warden, uh, who is my partner in this business, he diversified into the restaurant business and realized that there was nothing out there publishing-wise in terms of how-to best practices for startup restaurant operators. And uh, because this publishing company had specialized in other fields in that type of content, he said, you know, maybe there is a need for uh, a magazine that would provide that kind of instruction for people who uh, want to get into the industry as the startup part. And then, of course, those who want to grow into a larger enterprise. It's something you really need to explore if you are an operator and sitting and listening out there. It's a very good way to get very good content and a lot of solutions to your challenge that but we're going to come back to that so barry and i uh, we met for the first time today and we were put in contact by uh, a shared friend on linkedin uh, even brewer from australia which uh, we also are a very big fan of and has been on the podcast here as well and you came down to brighton today to to because i said you need to come down if you're in the uk you need to come down and visit brighton and see the restaurant scene and, and here we are doing the podcast as well so barry what brought you into to the restaurant world and the restaurant scene because normally people say stay away from restaurants. I'd been fascinated with the food industry for many years. I graduated from University of California, Davis, which happened to be a leading agricultural and food science university. And so I became interested in what was going on there. My first job out of college was as a newspaper reporter covering the agriculture industry in the Salinas Valley of California, which, as many of your listeners might know, is an important agricultural center for the U.S. And I'd been involved in in, as a consultant to specialized publications company for a number of years. When they decided to launch Restaurant Startup and Growth, Gary uh, Warden called me and said, listen, your background as a writer, I had accrued some other education as an MBA and law degree and uh, understood the business world pretty well. And he said, we'd really like you to come on board. I was a little bit reticent just because I didn't feel I had enough knowledge of the business, but with the consultants that we had worked with and the folks in restaurant.com, I quickly got up to speed and just fell in love with the entire industry. Our company also owns a restaurant called Peropos in Kansas City. So I had an opportunity to be involved in some decision-making there. I've found few industries as fascinating and challenging and frustrating as a restaurant business, particularly with the changes in technology, demographics, and so forth, particularly the people in this industry who are delightful. It's become a, a passion of mine in the last 15, 16 years. You're primarily supporting independent restaurant owners. That's correct, isn't it? That is correct. Specifically, those in the startup phase trying to get in the business, and then, of course, independent operators who are in the growth phase. We just feel they're the ones that really need uh, the kind of information that we are providing. So when you look at the, the market, um, so we talked about here in the UK and we hear the hospitality mavericks called it the perfect storm in the industry. There's challenge around workforce, rents are going up, the cost of running a business, the consumers are changing very rapidly and fast and it's difficult to find growth. There's a, a red ocean in general and you can see these trends across you know, the whole world. What, what challenge do you see when you come down to the independent? Because there's a lot of talk about these things around the chains, the larger chains that are struggling. How is the whole uh, independent 
sector doing with these challenges? No restaurant concept or business, regardless of the size, is immune from the things you've just talked about. They are challenges uh, with the technology, demographics changing, labor challenge, and of course, the cost of doing business. And it's not a high margin business. There's not much room for error where the independence struggle is probably the same things that we've both seen independents struggling with for the, you know, as long as we've been involved in this. They lack the systems, maybe not a clear vision of their concept often. And then, of course, you can't really succeed in a business like this where the margins aren't huge without a fair amount of financial acumen. You know, once the independent can develop the systems, can get the financial acumen to analyze their P&L, to do the things that are just basic to succeeding, then they're in a much better position to compete with uh, the chains, uh, particularly in this market. I think because of the younger dining consumer that we call the millennials, they seem to have an affinity for independence. And I think it's a great opportunity for really strong independence to have a good competitive foothold with chains who are struggling to remain relevant to this up and coming young generation of, of dining consumers. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting from your magazine and something we preach at Hospitality Mavericks as well, there's like some pillars of areas you need to really to excel and master to have a successful restaurant business and you said a business skill of financial acumen operation systems and building culture can you elaborate a bit about what you mean with building culture? Because that seems like a big undertaking when you are in the startup phase of a business. We have really you know, decided to try to educate operators on just how important restaurant culture is. And when we talk about that, we talk about a culture of hospitality, a culture of teamwork, and that requires very strong leadership, which is not the easiest skill for a lot of people to develop, particularly they come into this in love with food, not necessarily in love with management. But the culture we're talking about, I guess the best way to describe it is to really keep an eye on the guest experience. What is your guest looking for? And then communicating that throughout the entire house so that all of your, your staff understands what the objectives are in terms of executing the concept and providing whatever particular guest experience that is, whether it's very utilitarian, they want grab and go and they want out the door and quick and friendly, or they want something a little more what we call Donic, where they're coming to your operation and your concept for special occasions, big business deals, and they're going to want a lot of personal attention and service. That's, I think, part of where culture is, is critical to being successful. Talk a bit about offline as well. The uh, When you talk about culture, we talk about your employees, your labor. And I see that across the globe, it's becoming a challenge to attract people into jobs in hospitality. It's not looked at as a career path anymore for young people. And there's so many other opportunities you mentioned when we had a coffee earlier as well out there compared to just hotels. So suddenly you are in competition with so many others when young people are going out and getting their first job and actually seeing hospitality as a, a career track. Can you see that with the independent as well? They're struggling hiring people and keeping them on board for a longer period? Yeah, I would say that's very true. Younger um, workers are not as attracted to the business in years past. Almost every Everybody had a job in some type of uh, restaurant or food service operation in high school or in college. There are more opportunities out there. There's a lot of orientation to getting jobs within tech companies where you spend more time behind a screen rather than dealing face-to-face -face with people. And I think part of it has to do with these digital natives, with all the brilliance that they bring in terms of navigating our digital world, face-to-face -face communication in traditional manners rather than online or or via text messages, it can be a little bit more of a challenge for them. Not only you have issues with attracting people who are willing to do a very hard job uh, working in a restaurant, but also onboarding them and bringing them up to speed in terms of serving the public and taking care of diverse customer base, their needs and idiosyncrasies. I guess go to the U.S., a massive country and lots of states. It's almost like small countries, I would say. Would you see different challenges across these states with labor or is it similar if it's New York or it's Missouri or it doesn't even really matter where you operate. You will have the same kind of challenges right now. You know, from a financial perspective, one of the things to bear in mind is that even though there is a federal minimum wage, which is currently $7.25 an hour, which states are not allowed to go below, states and even municipalities are welcome to have their own minimum wages above the federal minimum wage. So in North Carolina, 
where I live, we're in lockstep with the federal government and our minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. You go out west to Oregon or Washington or California, even certain cities in those in those states, and the minimum wage is much higher. And of course, as you know, a lot of the entry-level jobs in the restaurant business are considered to be minimum wage. So your cost of labor can go up quite a bit. That's one of the differences from state to state. And then, you know, states have different cultural issues and also different economic issues. Some states might be stronger in terms of employment opportunities, states that were, you know, maybe not as many employment opportunities. The operators might have a little easier time attracting the kind of uh, workforce that they need. And also, I guess, when you look at the U.S., that's such a, you know, uh, different in concepts as well, because when you talk about in, in the U.K., most concepts can work anywhere. But I guess as well, if you take from an operator's point of view that you, if you are in a state, it's very difficult maybe to break out of that state if you don't have a very well-tested concept. But I don't know how, how that work again. I think it's just such a different market from, from Europe. You know, I struggle with that question a little bit. You know, if you asked me that question 15 years ago, I probably would have launched into a conversation where you have very strong regional food preferences. You hear about different styles of barbecue, if you mm. will, which is actually a very up-and-coming, on-trend area of the restaurant business. And so you'll have regional preferences there. You'll have certain, particularly in the uh, in terms of chains, certain chains that are more prevalent in certain parts of the country versus other parts. However, today I struggle with that only because I think the up-and-coming consumer, I'll use the term millennials for lack of better description, tend to be more familiar with different types of cuisine. And so I think you can introduce things that are a little bit different um, than you might have earlier because 20, 30, 40 years ago, not everybody had sushi or what is banh mi or what is Indian food. And it seems to me some of the younger generation who are becoming the predominant consumer base for the restaurant industry, they are much more adventurous. Creates a very exciting opportunity. It's just, it's hard to answer that question. I think any concept where the food is interesting and good and the business is well run, I, I think could have an opportunity in all but maybe the most rural areas where just people aren't, aren't familiar with certain types of cuisine. What is interesting still when I talk with other people in the industry is that actually the industry still majority is run by small independent businesses, mom and pop businesses. Mm -hmm. It's not the change. The change maybe in the UK is about 15-16% of the total market. I don't know, is that a similar sign in the US that, that the market is still dominated by primarily by independent businesses. Yes. The last time I've looked at those statistics, my understanding in the U.S. about 70 to 80 percent of units are independents. And I think the National Restaurant Association claims it's even larger. I think nine out of 10, if, I, if I'm not misquoting them. Um, in terms of the dollars, the revenue generated, I believe about, you know, 50% of the dollars are generated by the chains, even though they represent fewer units, um, there's just more traffic. But in terms of sheer numbers, yes, independent restaurants certainly dominate the restaurant business environment. And so uh, they are an important part of that whole economy. In today's world, the independent restaurants, that's what I see definitely here in, in Europe, is that there will be no tourism if you don't have great food experiences because people are now traveling for food experiences more than they travel for destinations. Sometimes you can see like tourism is a way dictated about how great your restaurant environments are. Like Brighton Wynn now is very built on great restaurants experience. People come traveling just to have food here. Absolutely. And even a more, I would say, micro type of example, you're seeing cities such as uh, Detroit, Cleveland, where these were big manufacturing hubs at one point, And then, you know, they became rust belt, as they say, locations. And they're trying to rebuild their economies with uh, tourism and other businesses. And restaurants in these cities are really the driving force behind the revitalization of some of these areas. In, in, in a town that I live, Cary, North Carolina, the downtown, really nobody was going to 15, 20 years ago. There were some small retail shops and so forth. And finally, the town leaders realized, hey, what brings people downtown is going to be food and entertainment. So you're seeing craft breweries and then, of course, restaurants follow that. And that's what's keeping people downtown after five o'clock rather than the proverbial sidewalks rolling up in the evening and, and essentially have a ghost town. So I, I, I agree with you, uh, you know, and I, and, I'll, and I will credit younger consumers for driving that because they are interested in the experience and, and they are behind food culture. And it, it's a wonderful opportunity for independents.
So here in the UK, what you just described, we called it the death of the high street in a way. And you've seen a lot of the big retailers and restaurant groups have closed down units. And it's been a topic the last couple of years and it's still fueling this conversation. Many say it's the Amazon effect of mm. things. And of course, that's an impact of that and changing consumer buyer. But also, I still believe deep down that you as an individual has to meet people in a place where you can meet and connect, where you can meet face-to-face. Everything cannot happen through the phone or the laptop. You cannot uh, sit at home. We have a need to connect as a human being, deep psychological need. So I just think, as you say, they will build, the high street will eventually turn into something different, but it's going to be more around the experimental, the living around the city centers for older people. I think there's some very interesting things and restaurants that can strive and make great experiences. They will have a have a very, very profitable future there, in my view. And I love what you're saying. It it really resonates with me on a number of levels. You call it the high street effect here. You're right, because of digital retailing, online retailing, those who have interest in real estate are dependent on the restaurants because they're taking over spaces that were once occupied by boutique retailers, which have a very difficult time succeeding for those reasons. But, you know, I think also in terms of your observation regarding the importance of the restaurant as a communal space. Uh, My children are 19 years old. They're what we would describe as digital natives. However, they see the restaurant's experience, a dining out experience, as a communal space for them to uh, meet with their friends. I have the opportunity to judge uh, restaurant concept competitions via National Restaurant Association's Pro Start program. I have done that over several years, and I've found that some of these young people who are developing concepts, their orientation to the business is as a communal space. Ten years ago, they would say, well, our restaurant is for soccer moms or for older people or for a younger generation. And what I'm seeing now is they're saying our space, we want to be a communal space for everybody, regardless of generation, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of religion. We just want this to be a place where people come together. And I I think that's a very positive thing. And I think with these younger folks who grew up hunched over their their phones, texting each other, you know, they're seeing a restaurant as a place where they can have that face-to-face communication. In this all where you you see the, the chains are struggling, there's no doubt about that. There's been in the news recently in the UK, we had a couple of the big ones either closing all the units or disappearing, or they will close a majority of the unit. Where actually what I've seen here is the, the independent that gets it right. So would you talk about financial acronym, the culture and the operation system? They thrive in these circumstances because they are ripe now. They're ready to go where people are starting to looking for these unique experiences. Is that what you see in the U.S. as well, where there's actually a, a time now for the independent operator to thrive because of the technology they can use? The, the, the world have changed so much. So if you are on the wave, you actually will have a big, big, big upside instead of being under the wave. I believe that. I think we're seeing it. The advantages of the chains over the independents are diminishing, I believe. They have the ability to hire people who are dedicated to marketing, dedicated to financial analysis and so forth. So they have that advantage. And of course, in terms of purchasing economies, you're going to see that they're, you know, it's very difficult to compete in terms of pricing if you're buying, you know, massive quantities. However, I mean, consider what was going on 20 years ago in terms of marketing, where people were oriented around tele- the television screen. And so you you have these restaurant chains with these large marketing budgets. Now with social media being being a predominant marketing platform, that advantage has gone away. And so where the independent that is well run and getting back to those pillars that you're talking about, culture, financial documents, systems, independent gets that right, does a good job with social media marketing. I think that uh, they can be on very good firm ground with the chain, particularly now that, you know, younger diners, they're not as interested in the same concepts that their parents are. They're looking for something a little bit more interesting that speaks to them. I believe believe and, and also provides a little more sense of adventure and uh, communal experience. What about, uh, I call it, uh, the operator that really cares? 
that goes beyond just making a profit for themselves, but actually also is active in the community to to give back. It could be giving jobs. It could be helping homeless people getting food every day. It could be taking care of the fish in the ocean. We have a restaurant down here. We're going to go visit later, Mashimo. Mm-hmm. It has a big campaign of actually putting attention to overfishing in the oceans. And they're a sushi restaurant. What do you think? That would be a coincidence that they will like to focus on that. But they've been like a well-known campaign they put in here. And they only one restaurant. But they make a massive difference because they talk about this story. Is that a thing you see as well? Winning in the US where the, the independent go further than just opening and closing their restaurant every day? Yes, absolutely. And I think the most successful independent operators, they are involved in the community. They have certain causes that are important to them. It is more than just about making money. It's about providing jobs, taking care of their people, sustainability, doing what's right. It gives them a much greater sense of purpose on Honestly, I don't think you can be happy in the long run in any career or any field uh, if you don't have a certain passion for it. I think that's what keeps me in, so uh, in love with the restaurant industry. When you run into folks like that, and I see them cross-generationally, younger, older operators, they care about their people. They're trying to provide jobs. They're trying to figure out how to improve the quality of life of the folks that they work with and also support the community, not only the local community, but larger issues such as being more sustainable, less waste, serving foods that, uh, seafood, for example, that is more sustainable rather than species perhaps that are endangered. All those things that you just mentioned, I I think that's a big part of, of succeeding in this industry. The interesting thing you just mentioned there as well was purpose or your why some people call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a very big fan of Simon Sinek here at uh, Hospitality Mavericks and he talks a lot about finding your why and live your why and it's articulating your why. And I guess that's something many restaurants, in my view, not have been really good at. The, the founder of the owner had not been very good at scaling their story. They maybe scale stores, but they often forgot to scale their story. So they become faceless over time as they scale because people buy into a story they like, they know and they trust, not numbers of stores in a way. And I think that's that's effect you're seeing as well and you see some of the smaller ones I've seen go out and very very good at communicating about their business like uh, again example they're massive now in the US they're 100 restaurants Sweet Green I really like the way they done you know their storytelling so I don't know if you see that as well uh, the narrative is critical not only for the independent for the chain as well uh, there is a very popular chain that specializes in chicken uh, in the US called Chick-fil-A and they are continually praised for the quality of their hiring and the culture of the restaurant The people they hire seem to have the hospitality gene and they please and thank you. And that seems to resonate with uh, customers. And so you see a lot of social media, you know, just how this business, which is serving a very simple product, a chicken sandwich, and blowing away their competition because of the reputation they have for having very polite, hospitable staff members. I think I read an article, uh, and I'm an old McDonald's fan and, 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 and also worked for McDonald's for many years is that they really outperform McDonald's store and store from uh, you know sales and profitability point of view there was a study done because that special thing they do and it's still a family owned company as I understand of course there's an investment that's been involved but yeah it's interesting to see that the difference of two similar concepts in the quick service restaurant sector imitation is the greatest form of flattery you know McDonald's uh, you know as we discussed earlier has you know I have always had confidence in that brand just because they've always done a good job at keeping up. Even if they get a little bit behind, they figure things out. And so you're seeing a lot of promotion of McDonald's uh, in terms of providing scholarship opportunities for their employees. Chick-fil-A has done the same thing. Uh, Chick-fil-A prides itself on not being open on Sundays so that people can be with their families and, and perhaps go to their house of worship. So you're seeing the narrative for these concepts not about, hey, our food is so great or we got such great prices or you can get how how much of a value you can get for your U.S. dollar, but we have a larger purpose and we take care of our people and you can feel good about spending your money here because we're good citizens. And I think it all comes back to your original premise that that's part of the narrative and whether you have one unit or, or you know, thousands. It's very interesting. Here in the U.K., we have a high-growth Indian casual dining chain. It's called Mokley and I interviewed 
the founder Nisha a couple of weeks. The podcast is going to be out soon. And it's very, very clear that they were not scaling unit. They were scaling the story. And she called it Mowgli. She moves as she want to move. I'm not in control of that. She decides where we go. And it's very interesting to have a founder that looks at it. That is like, I'm actually scaling a story. It's not about 100 restaurant units or 20. It will become what it becomes. Mowgli, the story is the main reason with the food identity, the people identity and so on. And exactly what you're saying, they, they try to adapt to that. What's very interesting, I wanted to, to ask you about Barry, is that I've always been very interested in what the best of the best do. So I've always studied that and that's why I'm a big fan of good to grade and so on. So what are the best companies and leaders doing in the world? Why are they outperforming others and consistently just better than others? If you took like an independent operator, because that's the field you study, is it? what is the attribute, the top three attribute of the, the best operators you see now there in independent restaurants? What are they doing? Our approach to operator education, you know, we've always said, you know, you need to follow the McDonald Ray Kroc principle, and that is, you know, you need to work on the business, not in the business. And of course, a lot of independent operators, they find themselves, they've created jobs for themselves, but they don't have time to step back and think about the marketing, finance, et cetera. You have to work on the business. However, I have tempered that philosophy a bit based on the reality of the operators who I've seen who've been very successful at the independent level. And those operators, are there on the floor quite a bit. They are in touch with what is going on. The absentee owner is, is a recipe for failure. The passionate owner who has a good sense of what he wants or she wants to accomplish in a restaurant is there and tasting the food and talking to the customers or the guests, if you will, and meeting with the staff. That is critical. And so for independence, the best of the best are doing that. The other thing that, and I hope this answers your question, in regard to growth, because people who are ambitious in the industry, they think, well, gosh, it's one restaurant would be great. I'd like two or three or four or five or 10. And of course, you've seen very successful businesses in the industry begin that way and, and, and grow. And so one of the things that is a predictor in terms of success, best of the best, is that they take growth strategically. Growing from one to two is a huge deal from a management perspective. What I would recommend and what I, in terms of what I've seen for independents that have a real potential for growth, not only having their systems because you need to have an operating manual that can be transferred from one unit to the next, but starting with that one unit and looking at how many ways you can make that unit more efficient, you can use the space better, you can drive more revenue or more important profits out of that one unit, where you really have energized that one unit to the point where it's operating its maximum effectiveness. You understand the culture of your concept that's driving your repeat patronage, because as you well know, it's your repeat customers that are going to keep you in business. And once you have that, and that could take a long time, now you're in a position to grow. But if you grow faster than that. What I've seen and I've I've consulted to operations and I've sadly seen them go from one to two too quickly. And what happens, number two just struggles. Number one is doing pretty well, but is subsidizing the losses of number two. And now you see the entire concept being swallowed up. That's more addresses failure rather than success. And then the other thing I see with the best of the best, and I think you suggest this in terms of the importance of culture, having a very clear vision of what your concept is and making sure that that vision is integrated throughout in the style of service, in the menu, in the ambience, so that when the guest comes in, they have an experience that they can go back to their friends uh, and describe very clearly, whether it's face-to-face -face or more likely on Facebook or Twitter. Wow, I went to this place and this is what it offered me. And wow, you really got to check this out. I don't think that happens by accident. Very interesting when you say that. That's what we call when we work with operators, we call it the patient game and understanding why game. Patient understanding why. And it's all about sometimes when it goes very fast, you don't actually know, understand why you were a success. What really tricked us, you say, why, why was it that they came again and again? Have we actually optimized before we open number two. Do we really understand what type of unit work best or were we just lucky? There's also luck in, in business. So again, it's on trying really to understand and stop being a study of your, studying your own business to be a student of that business. And that's actually coming back to, you mentioned Ray Kroc. 
before. Mm -hmm. That's what he did. He was a student of his own business and he found out suddenly what was made it tick and then it went fast. And I think all the, uh, when I've studied uh, successful operators, I can definitely see that trade is that they stayed small for a long time and they found out would work really well. And then suddenly the, the time was right. They were ready. The system was ready. And they could quickly move up to the next level. Because as you grow, we all know that, that there's a journey from 1 to 2, from 2 to 5, from 5 to 12, from 12 to 20. Odd, and then you go to 50 and then it becomes a totally different game. Franchising maybe come in and so on. And everything, so you go international, 100 units and your organization, everything changed. And you need to be able to, to grow with that. And not every restaurant, in my view, and also when I meet founders, they've learned that. They're not all, you know, the next McDonald's or 100 restaurant units. Not That's not the success. If you're subsidizing half your estate to the other financially, it's not a great business. So it's better to have fewer units that's profitable. Very good point you had there. And operational excellence. You can have good food. You can have the best menu in the world. The operational excellence is going to be the deciding factor whether you know you can make it to five years or more or make it from one to two units. As you suggest, you know sometimes a guest is going to tell you who you are. They're going to describe to you what's important to them. And then you go, wow, these are things I need to focus on uh, more diligently because this is why our guests are coming in here. We're all familiar with Danny Meyer and we've heard of the we Shake. We love Danny Meyer here, by the way. <laughs> we've heard the Shake Shack story yeah. where, you know, he, he, he started Shake Shack in New York to support local art installations and also to provide jobs for hospitality workers. Like as in every, every region, uh, hospitality uh, work can be a little bit seasonal, uh, depending on tourism and, and so forth. And so he created these things with, with no real interest other than doing some good things and, and providing some quality products and found out that what he was doing resonated with uh, his guests. And, and of course, this turned out from a, a small organization, private little organization, to something that had an IPO several years later and has been tremendously successful. Here's a guy who knows the restaurant business as well as anybody. And I have to guess he was a little bit surprised at first uh, just how Shake Shack had a life of its own. Yeah, that's a great example of that. You really don't know before you start studying it in a well. And, and I guess I, I think I heard him saying recently that, oh, Shake Shack is not done at all. We still need, there's a lot we need to learn in a way. So he's still very humble about where they are with things. So he's constantly learning. He's a student of the industry and his business in a way. Yeah. It gets back to when we started our uh, publication, Restaurant Startup and Growth and, and Restauranter.com. Uh, you know, one of our, our taglines, which we still use, a good restaurateur is always learning. I have a friend who's had an operation he started over 40 years ago, continuous operation for 40 years. Wow. He's, I think, getting close to 70 now, but energetic and still passionate about the industry. And he's he says he just learned something new all the time. And, uh, you know, if, if you enjoy learning, it's, this is a great business for you. Yeah, because you're forced to learn quickly as exactly. well sometimes when the time changes. So another thing that would be interesting to talk about or thinking about when I was preparing for our interview was that. So a lot of UK chains or restaurant chains have tried to take the move over to the US. Some with success, other with not. And the same the other way. McDonald's, Subway mm -hmm. has come from the US and Domino's Pizza and Pizza Hut over that's the bigger ones do you see there's a challenge between the two markets do you see them some very different the us and the uk from a operation point of view if you wanted to take your concept abroad i wish i knew more about the uk market to speak intelligently on that in terms of uk concepts coming over to the united states I think this is a, an excellent environment for that for a number of reasons. One, I think because of the consumer in the U.S., I think being a little more adventurous, I think there's just an openness to, to new concepts. My limited experience in the UK with hospitality is that I think that there's a very high level of attentiveness to the guests. I don't like to get into politics, but I think in some ways I find the UK a more civil society in many ways. And I think, you know, if that could be translated over to the United States, that would be great. And of course, I mean, there are already concepts, uh, you know, Irish pub themes, British pub themes uh, have always been popular there. There are a lot of people in the United States that identify with their ethnic heritage and, and many people 
came to the United States from Ireland, Scotland, United Kingdom. So in the United States, in a way, I don't see any discernible barriers to anything that's going on over here in the UK being successful in the United States. You're talking about McDonald's, Subway. Well, apparently it's been able to translate those type of concepts over here as well. So Another subject we like to talk about here on the podcast is delivery. And I know you just did a survey between independent <laughs> operators. And that's interesting when you talk with independent operators, because when you just talk from, you know, normal conversation with no analytics and no uh, survey done on it, most people are complaining about delivery and third party platforms and it's not profitable. But can you tell a bit about what you found out when you ask how many members this you have? 52,000 members or? Well, we trying to remember the exact number. I think it was about 900 of our of our members. We have about 9,000, 10,000 members of restaurant.com. One of the qualitative remarks that was made uh, in relation to that survey was the the uh, phrase necessary evil. The operators understood this was something they had to adapt to. It was not going away. It was only going to continue to be a more popular trend. But for some of the reasons you discussed, particularly the cost of doing it, the, the delivery, third-party delivery, Providers were looking for a pretty big cut of the sales in a business where margins were tight anyway. So, you know, there were some complaints about that. It's just very expensive. And I think a lot of independent operators just felt they were, you know, kind of being held hostage by this, but they had no other choice. And then there's the other question regarding, you know, is there going to be any incremental sales growth associated with these? Or uh, are essentially delivery, third-party delivery, uh, cannibalizing sales that might have come through the door through dine-in or take-out business. That's a question you have to ask. Uh, some independent operators saying, listen, we're just, we understand this is a trend, but we're not going to get on board with it for these reasons. There was, a, I have to say, a fair amount of negativity among our independent operator membership uh, toward what's going on in this space. And it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Do they say if it's good business? to be part of this trend or is it bad business? Depends on who uh, was responding. You know, I, I think uh, some just went along with it because they just felt they needed to be competitive, particularly with the chains that have embraced it. Uh, there were some that said, you know, this is this has been good for me. We're getting increased sales. We are getting a little bit more visibility in the marketplace. So it wasn't all, all negative. I think the issue really is, is just that right now that the major third-party delivery uh, providers, you know, want a big piece of the action and, and uh, from a financial point of view, it just makes it very difficult to figure out how you're going to make some money with this. What about when you come outside? There's a lot of talk about delivery is the next, you know, growth. There's all these crazy predictions where the delivery market can go. And you can see, you know, you have Uber Eats, you have Deliveroo, DoorDash, GrubClub, and what they all called competing for this market. And you can see a lot of dark kitchen coming in. So, so that's all happening in the big cities. That's what we see in the UK. And then mm-hmm. when you come out to the smaller cities outside, you know, Manchester, London, and I guess same for New York, Washington, LA. Is there, is there a change in how delivery market is evolving or is it the same across the, the whole of the US? Delivery is the next growth adventure if you're in restaurants. Well, it seems to be pretty uniform, at least in the primary and secondary markets. I, I don't see a lot of difference in the way it's approached. I, I think one thing that's positive is, is there a fair amount of competition out there. And hopefully that's going to result in the delivery systems, you know, trying to provide a little bit better deal for everybody involved. That's positive. You know, unlike for a long time, online reservation systems were dominated by open table. And so the operators kind of felt that they had to go along with it. They felt held hostage there. And and now you see more competition in that space as well. You know, it's just, it's hard to say how this is going to pan out. But my prediction is that once people get used to be able to get anything they want by just bringing up an app on their mobile device and having food in. You know, surprisingly, you know, in the United States, Valentine's Day is is a time where people go out to dinner. And apparently the Valentine's Day traffic for delivery was huge as well. So people are saying, well, we can dine in and have as good a dinner as we would have going out now because we can pretty much 
order whatever we want, and we can have it in the privacy of our own home. To me, that that that's very telling. If you start seeing Mother's Day and Valentine's Day delivery demand going up, I think that tells you more about the market than just about anything else. Yeah, yeah. numbers normally don't lie. Yes. So, so what about dark kitchen? That's something that's starting really in London now to have. It hasn't evolved over the last couple of years, but dark kitchen, you see, like it's different. You know, operators. There's only operating dark kitchen, so they maybe have one or three or seven brands under an umbrella now coming into London trying to dominate that space. So they don't have like a physical present anyway. They have a kitchen. They operate some kind of estate somewhere, and then they have drivers that comes and pick up from third-party platforms and deliver food to people. Is that something you see outside? I know it's been very big in New York and LA and stuff like that. Is that something you see in general in the market where operator starts creating online brand, but they're not there in the real world? I would predict that it's just going to continue to grow, partly because if online delivery trend continues, the next natural thing for any smart thinking operator is if we are having X amount of business via delivery, why do we want to spend um, a premium on a certain location? Why not? Just find some place where the rent factor is going to be lower, and we can operate from there. I think what you might find, and this is just purely a prediction, the craft brewers in the United States, which that that market is is just exploding. Of course, you need a big footprint to brew beer, and so these craft brewers, what they did is they found cheap space in you know maybe tired industrial areas next to railroad tracks, and they would. Essentially, put their brewing operations in there. Of course, they'd invite the public in to, you know, enjoy beer as part of a brew pub. And what you saw happening is these these craft breweries coming into these really tired areas uh, were had low rent factor, bringing lots of people, particularly young people who didn't care where they went as long as they had a good experience. And then you see them as sort of anchors for little restaurants popping up. Why I, I can't cite any examples of this, I could see the same thing happening with a dark kitchen. People like the food and they say, hey, you know what, what the heck? We'll have some dine-in here as well and people will come out for that. What I used to look, call the commissary kitchen, you know, if you can, if you have four units, five units, and you can do most of your prep from a commissary, or you have a food truck business where you have, you know, multiple food trucks, uh, and you want to do prep from a location, why not do it in some place where there's not a huge overhead in terms of rent? Yeah, and I had that discussion with a client of us uh, the other day, which has primarily a, a festival business, a food truck business. And they had the kitchen anyway. And I said to him, why don't you create a brand around that online and start using that capacity when you don't prep? Sell to consumers in the nearby area because there's a big residential area next to this area and they will be looking for like food like that, typical Mexican food and stuff like that. So yeah, there's many ways of, you know, because of technology and infrastructure that was not there 10 years ago for a restaurant to rethink their business. Also, the existing business that you mentioned earlier, finding that, unleashing that potential, it doesn't have to be about scaling units. I think that's a very clear message we go out. Growing a business is not always about units, it's about unleashing what you already have. Well, yes, and and you see this with uh, successful independents. And you were asking earlier about you know some of the hallmarks of, of some really successful independents in the U.S. At least for for dine-in operations, uh, you're seeing catering and banquets becoming a very important part of the business model. And that speaks to the idea of unleashing potential. You know, where can we utilize our our kitchen, our brand in other ways, and they can be very profitable for a lot of reasons that you and I discussed, one of them being that when you have a, a banquet or a, some type of catered event, you can predict how many people are going to be there. There's less food waste, pricing's easier, service is a little bit is simpler. So uh, these are all ways where you can generate more revenue out of an existing concept and actually expand your brand at the same time rather than thinking about, okay, I'm gonna, I, I've got something that works. Let's go to one to two to three to four to five units without really considering how we can really take that first unit and make it very powerful. Technology is another subject that's been very big in hospitality probably for the last 10 years, but really hooked on, in my view, the last four to five years where you can see there's a a lot of technology out there to help operators, both big operators and small operators. And it's a very, I would call almost mushy landscape of choice. How do you see tech impacting the industry and smaller operators? Wow, that's that's almost a whole other podcast, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> well, on so many different levels. And, and, you know, one of the areas that I've been 
particularly interested in is data analytics. Of course, the large chains, uh, as you well know, um, have been analyzing data from their units and determining peak hours and what's selling and what isn't. But, you know, I'm seeing even much smaller business restaurant concepts analyzing data. I remember listening to uh, a group of owners uh, when I was out in Colorado. They have a regional small chain. I think it was, you know, 15, 20 units. And they were using predictive analytics to determine the relationship between the weather and demand. And so, of course, if you can get a sense of how many people are going to be in your restaurant based on the weather, uh, that impacts your labor scheduling. It maybe impact your purchasing. And the forward-thinking POS companies are on board with that. And they're figuring out, hey, listen, you give us your data from, you put your data up into the cloud and we will give you analytics via a dashboard that'll be very helpful to run your business. Now, of course, the companies that are um, operating these, they are using that data for their own purposes as well for analyzing the industry. You know, we started in 2003 at the magazine. We had an article on, you know, should you be using a traditional cash register or going to a POS system? And now, I mean, that's not even a question if you want to be competitive, not only a POS system, but a POS system with multiple capabilities. For the independent operator, one of the things that you have to consider, though, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, is that you have to be very careful on your selection in terms of your POS system. I used to call this the Coke versus Pepsi decision. You're kind of stuck with it. <laughs> and it's very difficult once you have adopted a platform to switch gears, change that platform. It's just a training issue and, and, and other things. But the, the technology, I, I think the data analytics is really, I've, I've heard too many case studies of how where data analytics have been applied effectively that has essentially increased margins with uh, smarter inventory and purchasing and labor scheduling. And again, it comes back to what we talked about before, really understand why you're a success. So what works and doesn't work in principle. I normally say here when I advise people and I would talk with Iron Brewer on it as well on the podcast where we talked about it, you have to either, you know, you either have to save time or make money. That's the two things that the, that technology and is it there's a legacy, as you say, you make some choices and they follow you for years. And I think it's easier now to swap technology. But again, it's like a habit thing. You, if you change technology, you're also changing something in the front line. That's often where it goes wrong. It doesn't really get out to the front line and lift really well. You don't utilize the technology as you should and use the data behind and get people to use it in a proper way. You just buy it and then you switch it on and you forget it's a bit like any other systems it needs to be worked into your business absolutely and and, and that you know gets to our conversation on training and, and onboarding and the restaurant business has a fair amount of turnover now the smart operators again I is another thing that we could go back to what I consider to be the hallmarks of some of the really successful operators they've reduced their turnover their people are happy working there they've done things to keep them around a turnover is expensive and I think one of the things that operators need to consider is you know what is the cost of, of turnover and what can I do up front to reduce that? Maybe spending a little bit more money on wages or benefits or just taking care of my people. How is that going to save me money on the back end where I'm not going to have to have a re revolving door of new hires uh, every month? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's that's sometimes where you need you need to invest up front really to harvest the, the fruits and the value of things further down the line. And I think that that's sometimes forgotten because you just want a quick solution or you want to keep costs low on labor in a way. So I've definitely seen the people that are competitive. They're maybe not the highest paid in the industry, but they're definitely more than the minimum. And they have other benefits then connected with that. Who are your heroes? Who do you get inspired from when you look at the industry? Who do you think that that's like somebody, could also be somebody from outside the industry? Well, you mentioned Danny Myers. I've always admired his integrity. His his story came from a you know family where there's expectations of becoming doctors and lawyers, and, and they had hoped that he would have been a lawyer, part of the culture of, of his family, and he chose to be a restaurant operator and follow his passion. And, you know, more and more, uh, because I get older, I start to appreciate people who have followed their passion or doing what they love, um, not what 
necessarily is expected of them. And I think you can't be successful in any business without that passion. But what I find in hospitality is the people who generally who have had long careers in this, they just, they love what they're doing. They love the people that they're involved with. I have heroes locally um, in North Carolina and where I come from. And there's uh, Van Ure, and she's well known throughout the U.S. She's a very highly visible operator. She took over a business that her father started years ago called Angus Barn, which is kind of an iconic restaurant. And just in terms of her, not only her knowledge of the business, but her just her graciousness, she just epitomizes to me the ideal hospitality leader. Her love for her guests, her graciousness, just goes above and beyond. And the entire culture of that particular restaurant, which is a single unit, but they do several turns, I think, of 500, 600 people a night. Wow. But every person you run into in so that... it's a sit-down restaurant. Yes, absolutely. Wow. And I really credit her with somebody who was able to take her personality and her graciousness and make it work throughout the house. I have a, another friend who, uh, Arthur Gordon, founded Irregardless Cafe when he graduated from North Carolina State University. He had the first vegetarian restaurant in the North Carolina. This is in the 70s where in a state where pork barbecue was a staple, he had the first non-smoking restaurant. His place burned down in the 90s and he kept every one of his staff members on payroll during this two or three months it took to get the place up and running again so that they didn't have to go looking for other jobs. Now, he said, listen, it wasn't just all out of altruism and care for my people. It was, I knew once I got up and running again, I didn't want to have to train everybody to do the job. So they stuck around. He's one of those people who uh, he followed what was important to him. And now the market kind of caught up with them. Now vegetarian restaurants are popular. He's been doing this for 40 years in a state where when he started, it was an anomaly. So um, these are people you may have not heard of, but they're people who inspire me by their passion and integrity, which uh, I think at the end of the day means more than anything in this business. It's beautiful. I totally agree. Sometimes you don't have to be the rock star or the Danny Mario. There's also a lot of smaller operators out there that's doing a lot of different things. Uh, we had Carl from Mushimo here on the podcast. We had the chili pickle on the local restaurant as well. You don't have to be the big operator to, to make the, the chainsaw Danny Meyer. There's, there's so many and it's all about, you know, I call it a, the love for, for people, customer and food. Mm-hmm. If that's there, you, you can create a lot of impact. If uh, in the end of the podcast, we always ask the guests to give like one advice to the industry out there, what would your advice be of all the things you can give to them? If they were doing one thing, what should they do? Be comfortable with your numbers. It's not the sexiest thing in the world, I understand. But at the end of the day, that's going to determine whether you can open your doors tomorrow. Get comfortable with your P&L. Learn how to read it. Know when something's amiss. And if you have to go in the general ledger to see, you know, if you're spending too much or if there's waste or stealing. Again, not the sexiest part of the business, but once you get comfortable with that, you'll sleep better at night. And when you sleep better at night, you'll be more refreshed. And you'll be able to do all the things you love in the morning. Great advice. And uh, we can't disagree here on Hostility Mavericks. We also say know your numbers in and out. Thank you very much, Barry, for taking the, the turn around Brighton and, and doing the, the podcast. As you said, there's probably other podcasts if we just take the subjects, delivery, tech, big subjects in themselves. So uh, enjoy the rest of your, your stay here in Brighton and the UK. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. It's just been a wonderful experience and I appreciate your hospitality very much. Thank you, Barry, so much for coming here to Brighton today, all the way from the US and sharing these amazing insights. I'm sure there's a lot of reflection going on out there. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a like, review, share, or even better subscribe to our community and newsletter VM hospitalitymavericks.com, your gateway to Maverick Insights. Thanks to Let's Talk Video Production for your ongoing assistance. Tune in next time for another industry interview. Thanks for listening and be Maverick.